Thank you for downloading the PR Week, PR Week's weekly podcast. For more podcasts as well as breaking news, visit PRWeek.com. Thank you for downloading the PR Week, PR Week's weekly podcast. For more podcasts as well as breaking news, visit PRWeek.com. Hello and welcome to the PR Week, PR Week's regular weekly roundup of everything that matters in the worlds of PR and communications. My name is Steve Barrett. I'm the editorial director of PR Week. going to guide you gently through another show. And uh, delighted to be joined by David Bentley, the CEO of Porter Novelli. Uh, David, great to have you on uh, the PR Week. Steve, I think this is uh, I think this is my first podcast in a long time, so I'm honoured to be here and honoured to be uh, here with uh, with uh, sharing a perspective on everything that's going on in the world today. Yeah, and there's plenty to chat about. And Frank, you're outnumbered this week, mate. Uh, two Brits, I'm afraid. <laughs> Sorry about that. So Frank Washcook's here, our executive editor. How you doing, Frank? I'm doing well. It's it's the sort of thing you get used to around here. It does it does happen occasionally. Well, I was going to ask you about that, David, but we'll, we'll we'll talk to David, and then we'll talk about a few topical stories. Edelman's latest trust barometer, talking about business as a trusted institution. Some great PR for Ford with the president. Finn Partners is buying itself out of Stagwell Group. Um, what about mask communications? It was a week ago today when the CDC made that uh, uh, big statement, and uh, we've been debating it all re- all week about who's doing it well. Do we even know what the rules are and all that good stuff? And then TikTok, ByteDance, the CEO co-founder is stepping down. So that's an interesting story. But uh, yeah, David, starting with you, you've been in the Porto Novelli job for just over a year. And uh, you came from the consultancy world, a former McKinsey VP, and a long history of working in some real big names in the digital space, AKQA, Viant, Agency.com. You're taking me back to my dot-com era roots at Revolution when I started my business media career. But interesting background to come and run a PR company. How's it been for you? Well, um, I'm happy to set the stage. I I joined in, I think it was 7th of March or somewhere along those lines um, last year. And uh, Not much going on there, was there? (laughs) (laughs) A A week later, um, uh, we went into lockdown. And so for the last 14 months, I've, um, like everyone else, actually been, been behind a screen um, working with the Port Valley crew. And it's been actually amazing. I've enjoyed every minute of it. There's no doubt that it's been a roller coaster ride, but it's, uh, but it's amazing to be here and amazing to, to lead what is an incredibly fabled uh, company that does amazing work. And I'm proud to, uh, to be leading them. Uh, today. I think my background, I've got a curious background, as you say, uh, for someone coming into the communication space. But, you know, my career has sort of moved from building software, building uh, sales channels and understanding what the value of mobile or social is, both from a marketing, but also business context. Um, It's morphed into the implications of a digital world and an internet-enabled world, um, and that certainly through my McKinsey time has has been what I've focused on. And I think the world is so now profoundly shifted and changed by digital technology um, and, and connectivity uh, that I think many of the reasons why we find ourselves in today's business world is actually driven by that 
by that environment and the economics behind it. And so I've always been fascinated by how do companies adapt to um, this changing world. Um, and I think there's no better place to be or a space to be in than in the communication space. Um, I continue to believe that communications is an absolute superpower in today's world. Um, and so I'm, I'm psyched to be part of Porter um, and to be leading it, leading it forward today. I see my background as being fantastically relevant. Um, and the yeah, more I, think, I know about uh, Porter, the more I see it. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, there's big discussions over the years about PR getting his seat at the table and uh, having a role in senior strategy. And clearly you would have had that at McKinsey and, and with the direct sort of relationships with CEOs and the C-suite. But if anything, the, the last 12 months has taught us is that communications is absolutely vital to leadership, isn't it? And I think the role of communications has gone way up even further in in estimation from those those key stakeholders. Is, have you found that? And have you found it as easy to get a foot in the door with your Porta Novelli hat on as you would have done with your McKinsey hat? Well, I mean, they're two very different businesses with with, with very different reasons for being. Um, I can't necessarily talk about um, what it was like at Porter before. But what I can say is I think we're, we're getting involved in, in some really substantive and important um, topics with clients as they've grappled with the last 14 months. And it's not just a pandemic. Um, there are lots of topics that um, companies are grappling with. Um, there's so much uncertainty out there in terms of the steps to make, the pace of business, um, and some of the uh, political and social uh, turmoils that have been going on, particularly um, with racial justice. Um, and it's been a real opportunity for us to bring the power of communications into our senior stakeholders and guide them through what I think have been some really choppy waters, um, particularly, I think, actually on, 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 on racial justice, which I think it, for many clients has created quite a lot of discomfort and um, a lack of a lack of comfort of, of what they should be doing. Um, and I think the wider context of that is that companies um, who have never really been expected to have a point of view or to have a um, perspective on some of these topics are suddenly being quite um, substantially asked what their point of view is on a topic like Black Lives Matter um, and the George Floyd uh, murder. And companies are sitting there saying, well, it's not really my job to have a commentary on this. That feels like an external topic that doesn't really relate to us as a business as we look at ourselves as selling widgets or selling services or whatever it might be. Um, and I will admit that um, after the George Floyd killing, I too had a similar perspective, which is this feels like a um, this seems like it feels like an externality. Um, and I learned very quickly um, that I was entirely wrong on that perspective uh, from a couple of different angles. One is we had a series of employees within our organization who were truly hurting, um, hurting um, to a really core degree and level and to a level that I had never um, understood, appreciated. And I recognized that actually our employees are our most important stakeholders um, and not listening to them, not understanding, not appreciating um, the pressure, anxiety, and the challenges that, a, that an event like that and the 
and the, the, the emotions that it raises it was just a really important learning for me and one that I've actually worked with um, a number of senior clients on to realize that actually organizations have a really important role to play in um, certainly uh, their employee base um, and uh, and their colleagues and making sure that we are cognizant of some of the situations that are going on out there in the world um, and how we can um, help them navigate and provide support to them. Um, that's part of being uh, an organization that has responsibilities um, beyond just the widgets that it makes and the widgets that it sells. And I think it goes a little further than that too. Um, I think uh, we've seen quite a lot of the impact that business can have um, on topics, whether it be around um, uh, the, re the reduction in, in voting laws um, that are going across the United States and the impact that, uh, that CEOs can have in, in trying to drive a different dialogue. Um, and I think this just goes into the narrative that we're moving away from uh, a, a sort of clean break between what a business does and what government does. And it's got quite fuzzy um, around what government and businesses' roles are. And I think it's, I think it's emerged. Certainly from a Portland Valley perspective, we believe um, that there are so many challenges going on in the world that there's, uh, a government couldn't, couldn't, um, couldn't solve all those problems. And business has a really strong role to play um, in beyond just a, a profit environment. Tell us about the heritage of Porto Novelli and what that brings to this debate, because Porto was founded on some of those purpose principles and has been talking about that for decades. It is a, a difficult conundrum. It's not natural for some companies or CEOs, but you're right that employees are driving it. But uh, employees also come in diff very different shapes and sizes and stripes and opinions, etc., and especially in global companies. So how can you uh, help them balance that out and, and make statements and do the right thing, but also keep all their employees and their key stakeholders and customers on board? Well, I think, firstly, let's get to the, I think the heritage of Porter. I mean, the heritage of Porter is, is, is I think, reasonably well-known. We're, a 50-year-old, in fact, we're going to be 50 years next year. Um, and Jack Porter and Bill Novelli were kind of the, 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 the parents, probably grandparents now, of social marketing um, and how you bring marketing communications to some social topics um, and was particularly renowned for doing work with government agencies solving um, thorny challenges like the HIV AIDS crisis um, in the 80s and, and how to um, how to increase awareness of HIV and AIDS. Um, other topics included um, health, nutrition um, and uh, tobacco cessation and topics like that. So using all the commercial knowledge that we've gained from communications, advertising over the years and actually applying to some of the social challenges they're going out of the world. And I think that's always been a thick seam and, and a reason for being for, for Porter, and it continues to be so. Um, in terms of uh, how companies navigate today's world, yes, they do have a number of different stakeholders. I think our fundamental belief is actually starting with understanding those stakeholders, understanding those shifting expectations. Um, and that's getting faster and faster as it moves along. Um the topic of purpose or the topic of 
of understanding the role an organization, particularly a commercial organization, has beyond um, purely shareholder value creation, I think is uh, is a topic that's been discussed a lot. And I don't think it's related to political perspectives necessarily. And I certainly don't see racial justice as a political um political topic. In actual fact, I've had a number of com- number of conversations with folks asking, how do I respond to this BLM if, our, um, if a group of our people don't believe the BLM uh, actually exists? And the key is, I think, and where purpose is so impactful, is it can provide a, a compass for the organization um, on what matters to the organization. And it's not about political affiliation. It's actually around um, some more basic topics around um, providing... Uh, equitable opportunities for um, all people in society. It's about um, believing, if you will, in the uh, in the power of democracy and that being something to be held sacrosanct. I actually had a client, had a long conversation with us as the um, latest presidential uh, vote was about to be um, cast and, and the election was starting and asked me how should he communicate with his employees um, and, and other stakeholders. He was getting pressured to provide a perspective in terms of which candidate he had a preference for. Um, and I said, my counsel to him was, your job isn't necessarily to find a partisan environment for you to feel comfortable in. I think the, the opportunity here is to support the idea of democracy uh, and the right to vote and to encourage everyone to cast their vote irrespective of their political beliefs um, and um, and to make sure the organization is supportive of that. And ways to do that might be um, give your employees the opportunity and the time to, to actually vote, to go down um, to the ballot box and do that. And um, making those statements and, and making those actions at the same time are very much something that we believe at Portland Valley as just an important part of how we um, deal with deal with and manage our, uh, our stakeholders and how we um, communicate and express our belief systems within an organization. All right, so we'll get into some topical subjects. Thanks, David. Good to chat. Um, Frank, tell us about the latest swathe of the Edelman Trust Barometer because an interesting finding about uh, business and uh, being now the most trusted institution. Tell us all about it. Yeah, sort of a continuation of uh, what we saw in the most recent trust barometer before this, and that's the, the dropping trust uh, in institutions like the media and in government and more trust uh, in your employer to uh, to do what is right, to do the right thing. Um, and I think that makes that makes a lot of sense. I, I think if you just take the past year, 15 months, uh, most people would say they're probably getting more communications and more advisory messages and more, um, you know, we're sending you home because we care about your health messages from your employer than you are from uh, other institutions. And so that makes sense. But I think if you also think about, um, you know, the news of the past few months, government can't do all the solutions by itself. And I think sometimes there's an expectation that it can but in this case, you know, the vaccines have to be made in the private sector and government can help in the distribution. But it's the private sector that is uh, doing a lot of the, the research and development and things like that, and really taking on the lion's share of the work. Uh, so I think this reflects that in, in a lot of ways. I think it also reflects that, that in a lot of ways, 
our system of politics and, and, and government does not lead to uh, solutions that are the result of compromise across parties quite quite a lot. And and that's something that, that people are, are that's being reflected in studies like this a lot as well, I think. Um, there are shifting expectations, and we can talk about where those shifting expectations are coming from. We know about um, uh, generational shifts, um, but I think it's quite fascinating that even from our research, 69% of employees um, actually won't work for a company that doesn't have a strong um, purpose that goes beyond um, just a profit purpose. Um, and 60% would actually take a pay cut to work with a company that had a really strong, forward-looking, um, more well-rounded perspective. And I talk a lot a li- uh, talk a lot about employees because I think sometimes in communications we see it as a sort of a, a, a consumer-only perspective, but I actually do believe that impact in communications can be had internally as well, as well as with shareholders and with other communities. Um, and there's nothing more important from a business perspective in pretty much every CEO's world than actually winning the battle of battle for talent. That number really jumped out at me of people who say they would take a pay cut to work at a company that reflects their views and reflects what they believe in. Because I, I think you'd almost, you know, from like a pre-millennial, pre-Gen X like standpoint, you were not pre-Gen X, but pre-millennial standpoint, you'd almost look at this and, and be like, well, money talks, right? So uh, people would go where the money is. But that that all, that all finding also jumped off the page of me. So I'm, I'm glad you brought that one up. Frank, next story. Um, some great uh, PR for the board uh, this week where they got uh, President Biden to uh, take a test drive in an F-150. How did that come about? And, uh, and uh, what was the resulting uh, uh, awareness that was built around it? Yeah, excellent story by our colleague Betsy Kim here uh, on this about um, what Mark Truby, the head of comms at Ford, is calling a force multiplier. Um, And that was the president's visit uh, to a factory uh, outside of Detroit where they are making the new all-electric F-150 Lightning, which is a pickup truck. Um, And more information is rolling out about this today. And you see it all over the media and you see more profiles of Ford CEO as uh, as the company really sort of turns its attention and turns its pickup trucks, which is is a big focus uh, of its product line, uh, over to electric vehicles. But about the visit, this is, in my opinion, when one of these rare situations where uh, you know the political goals and a company's goals align, where Ford is trying to roll out this electric vehicle and to get acceptance of it. Um, and the president is in Michigan and is visiting a Ford factory and. Um, there being a jobs impact from green technology is a big thing that he campaigned on, uh, showing that, you know, the switch to green technology and green energy uh, isn't just lip service, that there's a huge opportunity to create jobs and, and to create working class and middle class jobs as a part of this. And this lined up perfectly with that. Uh, and you have this great photo op of, of him uh, driving the test truck around and, and saying that this sucker's fast. And all of these things sort of come together into a really good photo opportunity. I, I wondered, I have to admit, I, I'm, I'm a bit of a history buff and, and a buff for these things. And I, I wondered, when was the last time a sitting president has actually <laughs> driven a car or truck himself? I'd love to get an answer for that because I, I don't know. Maybe if one of our listeners knows, they can email me. Um, but it's it just just a great opportunity for Ford. Uh, it's it's also 
it's a battleground state. Michigan is. So it's a good opportunity for the, the Biden team as well. Uh, and, and again, just one of those rare situations where the, the political goals and the corporate goals come together really seamlessly. Yeah, David, is there, are there any sort of potential downsides to this? I remember the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson Johnson loves doing these things. He drove a forklift truck, didn't he, through a, a bunch of sort of polystyrene bricks. I think it was the last year. And that can go two ways, can't it? Because not everyone loves these leaders. So, But on the other hand, it, it seems like a brilliant uh, PR hit. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a clear win-win for both sides, in my view. Um, I think there's a nuance here, which is, you know, the F-150 is the highest selling truck. It is kind of the pinnacle of the Ford brand at the moment. Um, and th- there's no doubt that, yes, it fits with uh, Biden's um, green policy. But I think also there's a sort of uh, there's there's an interesting political maneuver there as well to try and um, get the interest and alignment um, with a strong truck brand um, that is uh, that is likely to have a, a strong purchasing power within um, working class America and um, and his uh, appealing to that audience. And I think there's a subtext in there that, that I think is another win for Biden if it can come off. Um, I don't think there's any chance of any cancelling that would be going on with that. And actually, I think it's, for me, it's a pivot point in which the the, the most sold um, automobile in the United States is now moving to an electrical variant or an electric variant that I think uh, just feels like we're about to move away from gasoline-based automotive. Um, and don't forget, they actually announced, the Biden government announced, I think this week, that uh, in 2035, um, they're looking to phase out um, gasoline-fueled automotive mobiles. So, um, you know, I, I, I think this is a, I think this is much stronger than anything Boris Johnson's done with polystyrene. <laughs> yeah, well, me and Frank have followed uh, Bojo's antics carefully over the years, and sort of <laughs> his famous rugby tackle on a seven-year-old child, and his zip lining, <laughs> yes. and his, his uh, flying the flag at the Olympics. So he's a uh, He's a, a great ambassador for our country, maybe or maybe not. But uh, yeah, the, interesting the stuff. zip line is my favorite for the, for the, the <laughs> zip line is a, is a personal favorite. I think, I mean, I, tackling I think it's a, also tackling worth... a seven-year-old. You can't, you can't be that, surely. And it, you know, he was really competitive about it. I remember going, "What are you doing?" <laughs> the, the, the other thing to point out about this right now is that I, I, it works for Ford too, because Biden's numbers are good mm. right now. And his yeah. he he is not carrying that likability dislikability thing that Trump had for years around his shoulders in the same way his predecessor is. Uh, so so it there I don't see a lot of risk for Ford right now. I mean, who knows where yeah. his numbers are going to be in the future? But right now, it's it, it's a very solid opportunity for them. Yeah, and we should say that GM obviously has made a big commitment to electronic vehicles and phasing out gasoline uh, engines by 2030, I think. So maybe they'll be a little green with envy. Do you see what I did there, Frank? Um, But uh, they might be able to get the president to their plants as well. So uh, interesting stuff. There's an an agency story. Finn Partners has uh, been a part of uh, Stagwell Group. Well, Stagwell had a minority stake, but Finn Partners is buying itself out of it. What's happening there, Frank, and why are they doing it? 
Yes, that's it. And this happened a couple of months ago. Uh, and this is what they call sort of a, an amicable separation as they bought back the minority stake. Um, and they had Finn Partners has also uh, sold its stake in Y Communications, the conflict shop that the two firms uh, launched together. So Stagwell took a minority investment in the agency in 2017. Uh, and Finn Partners has gotten a lot out of it as they have they have bought up a ton of agencies over the past couple of years. Uh, their CEO, Peter Finn, says they've almost doubled in size uh, since then. Um, and, and so it's been successful for them. Look, Stagwell has a lot going on, too. Uh, their, their merger is uh, in the works uh, with MDC Partners, which uh, Mark Penn is also the principal of. Uh, and Stagwell uh, has a majority share, owns SKD Knickerbocker, Sloan Company, Allison Partners. Um, uh, and so, uh, you know, that is a separate deal going on. But interesting that Finn is buying themselves out of that. Yeah, David, you've been involved in a few agency machinations over the years. I mean, is it good to be within the holding? I guess it's, there are good things about being in a holding company under the tent and being independent as well. What's your perspective on this? Listen, it sounds like it's a win-win for both sides. Um, I was really, I think if you look in the rearview mirror, it's actually, a, it's an interesting, you can look at it as a, as, a, a, as a good financial partnership. I mean, I think... Uh, it sounds like, and I, I don't know the details too well, but it sounds like Finn has managed to, to, to grow during the period and use the capital they received, um, in order to do so. So it looks like a win. Um, and with respect to the question of independent versus, uh, holding company, I, uh, think there are absolute benefits for both. I'm a big fan of, um, entrepreneurialism and entrepreneurialism can happen in independent and also, uh, in in corporate environments, and it sounds like they want to take back um, their ownership. And you know, I wish them the best of luck because it's an exciting time um, yeah, sure. to be taking back your business. So, um, good luck to them, and uh, you know, I'll track their progress. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about mass communications. This time last week, the CDC made a big pronouncement on masks. Slightly out of the blue actually and uh, maybe just vibing on what everyone's think feeling everyone was you know ready for summer they were ready to sort of break out a bit and get back out there and enjoy themselves and go to restaurants etc frank what did you think of the way they <clears throat> handled it because for a while people were really confused weren't they and i know i was sort of walking down the street thinking should i be wearing a mask or not and uh, i've got to wear it on the public transport got to wear it in stores or in restaurants or bars but then i can take it off when i'm walking in between what did what was your take on it my feeling was that CDC had been more inconsistent than I would have liked and, and maybe not as proactive in what they had said prior to last Thursday. Um, and, and I do think you're right that the announcement last Thursday was a bit out of the blue. And I almost wanted to hear more from them as the case numbers continued to fall and as progress uh, continued to be made in, in leading up to this. And maybe it would have been less of a shock. I, I think in both what the White House said and what the CDC said, you know, they 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 made clear that, yeah, you can start to unmask if you're fully vaccinated, which is the two shots or the one shot if it's Johnson and Johnson, but then plus two weeks. Uh, but dependent on the business's rules and dependent on uh, state and local. And those two things are doing a lot of lifting 
So I, I, you still have to carry a mask with you and be flexible about what you want. I mean, I know just even seeing on Instagram, like a few local restaurants uh, saying, until we're fully comfortable, we're going to ask you to wear masks inside or we're not going to have fuller indoor seating until we're at a more comfortable place. So a, a lot of businesses are are going to do what is best for them in this case, including and we profile 25 uh, retailers and, and stores where you have to go in uh, and what they're saying to customers about it. And a lot of that reflects like what they do, you know, so one of the stricter mask mandates among uh, in the private sector is Apple and Apple stores, which are going to require both people who work there and customers to have masks. And they'll give you one if you don't have them. And I think that sort of reflects their business model in that you, you, you go to an Apple store, you're doing a lot of person to person conversation that you can't really do through a screen. Uh, whereas you might not have as much of that at like a Target or a Walmart. Um, so in short, I, I, I think CDC's communications overall for a number of months could have been a little bit better, and maybe that's why that took them by surprise. Uh, but I don't think it was a total fail for them. I think the numbers, and if you look at the, the numbers of COVID-19 cases and deaths and hospitalizations, uh, clearly we're moving in the right direction here. So I, I, I do think the numbers back up their overall strategy, but they could have been a bit more, uh, they could have been less surprised to what they did last Thursday. Yeah, even the, the size of the text where it was saying you still need to, you can, you know, we're talking about people who are fully vaccinated here, right? Um, and obviously that has to be taken on trust, which is a whole whole thing. How did you think it was handled, David? <clears throat> I think... Um... I think all this represents um, how complex it is, how complex the United States is, um, and how difficult it's been in the pandemic to actually really get your arms around a um, issue such as COVID nineteen. You know, if you take a, a country like the UK, it's actually reasonably it's reasonably easy. It's a small geographical size, and it's undoubtedly there's been some challenges, but the government um, is a little bit more top down um and the mandates that have been set there have been sort of overarching and so that actually makes communications quite easy and we can sit there and say well if it comes from the top the prime minister and the cabinet then it sort of filters down and everyone into lockdown you can disagree with it or you can or you can agree with it um but then it was easy to get a route out i think what this reflects is how difficult it is to manage a virus such as this in a complex ecosystem such as the united states um you've got a, a federal i think you've got a federal organization that's looking to um tell the truth and at the same time i think sort of provide some some hope i think you've got um, local um, state governments who I think um, are in different positions of success. I think you've got um, uh, corporate entities who are grappling with what that means for their employees as well as the customers, both from a risk perspective but also a care perspective. And I think this is just uh, – I think it's been, a, it's been a tough one. On a personal basis – I have no idea what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm fully vaccinated, and that makes me excited to go and do a bunch of stuff, but I feel compelled to continue to wear a mask, um, in part because of hesitancy not to, but also um, out of respect for others um, who might not be vaccinated. And so I think it's I, – I think it's a – I thought it was strange that they came out with it, but I understand the pressure to do it because, you know, it's clear – 
it's clear from a data perspective that the um, that the vaccines are having an impact. So maybe this is just a starting point, and we'll look back and say it was on this moment that the CD said you don't need to wear a mask um, in these scenarios that you know. This was the beginning of the opening up in the United States on what has been, I think, an incredibly complex and difficult time. Yeah, no, I agree. I imagine you'll have to wear a mask on the plane over to the UK as well, even at the end of June. So that that's still in place, isn't it? Um, which uh, yeah. is not I'm just I'm pleasant. just hoping I don't have to quarantine because I've been vaccinated. That's yeah. a really annoying thing. Yeah, yeah. No, still lots of, like uh, like you were saying earlier, you know, public health is, is a lens through which um, communications is going to be shone through for a long time, yeah. And uh, every, every piece of comms that you do has to really take that into account. And interesting to see how people are coping with it. Let's finish up with TikTok and ByteDance. Uh, Frank, the CEO and co-founder, has, uh, has stepped down and says he's not really good at doing this public-facing stuff. But it it's, it raises a number of issues, doesn't it? Not least the fact that TikTok is very much a, it's a Chinese company, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Um, it is. And it's always fascinating when a CEO publicly acknowledges they, they, they simply lack the skills to do some parts of the job. It's not, it's not something you hear uh, no, it that often. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a really unique uh, pronouncement by them. Um, I, I think reading a lot of the technology sector coverage about this move, um, the gist of it seems to be don't expect TikTok to change too much. Uh, though there are a lot of questions right now about what kind of a workplace it is and, and, and things like that. But um, it just in terms of a platform in and of itself, I mean, now that it seems to be out of the government's crosshairs, which it was under the Trump administration, uh, expect them to continue to do a lot of the same things just because of the level of success that it's had and just it's it's skyrocketed and and I, I even to you know a generation younger than me it's an incredibly incredibly popular platform uh, so public facing I mean we may not notice a lot of the changes that that happen here uh, but perhaps people working within the company will be um, will be seeing a lot more of that. Yeah, no, it's been a bit of a roller coaster, hasn't it, David? I mean, they had obviously the, the Trump administration was trying to get the company shut down in the states and or, or and or uh, taken over. That pressure has eased a little, but uh, it, there's no doubt it's been a revolutionary platform in terms of communications and uh, social media. But it's also yeah, it does have this interesting cultural mix. And there was a piece in Forbes this week, which, you know, had some very uh, damning stories about the internal culture and staffers, you know, expected to work uh, incredible hours and be on call 24-7 and work to the Chinese time timetable, which for a company that claims it's not uh, owned by China and is a, an independent operator seems a bit weird. But so what's your take on TikTok? I don't necessarily have a comment specifically, I think, on, on this particular topic, but I do, I, I, I will say that I know um, organizations, small and those growing at the, at the speed in which TikTok is, always face struggles of scaling um, <clears throat> beyond um, beyond where they are. And I, on the face of it, it feels like it's a CEO who's uh, who's stepping down to take another role within the company. Um, but stepping down in order to allow someone else to take it to the next level. 
on the face of it, it seems like that's a smart decision. And we've seen it in lots of tech companies in the past. Um, Google being on the obvious, um, uh, the obvious one in which uh, bringing in uh, uh, another CEO um, with different skill sets actually allows it to scale and, and, and develop in a way that's maybe a little more healthy or a little bit more consistent. Um, I actually know very little about uh, ByteDance and TikTok in terms of their culture or anything like that. But from my interpretation, it feels like a CEO that's actually making a difficult but a really interesting decision to allow someone to take over for its next level of development. Yeah, uh, for sure. And there's been big leadership change in the U.S. as well with different people coming in for relatively short stints. But so no doubt about the compelling nature of it as a platform and how uh, popular it is. So, you know, it's, uh, and it's on that high growth trajectory, of course. So, uh, yeah, we'll see what, uh, what happens next there. David, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for being on the show and good luck with the work you're doing over at Port in the Valley. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Don't forget our PR Week Global Awards. They are, by the time this is uh, live, actually, they'll be out out there so do check out the winners of that the the big global winners our brand film awards take place next tuesday really looking forward to that it's uh it's been a renaissance in brand filmmaking over the past year and uh, that'll be reflected in the show and it's still the only show that really concentrates on brand film the final deadline for the 40 under 40 list um that's coming up as well so uh make sure you get your submissions in for that i think that's the 26th the Hall of Fame virtual event will take place on the 10th of June. Great celebration of uh, top women in PR. And don't forget PR Decoded, looking for the fall, the uh, 12th to the 15th of October. And the Purpose Awards will be on the 13th. But that's all we've got time for. We'll see you next time on the PR Week. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the PR Week. To find more episodes, visit PRWeek.com.